Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Then we have the genealogy of Moses and Aaron, their family tree. We'll skip down to verse 26. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Pastor Haddon Robinson tells the story of his father who passed at 88 years of age. For the last years of his life, he lived with Haddon in Texas. But before that, he lived in New York City in a section of the city called Harlem and in a section of Harlem called Mousetown, which Reader's Digest had, had basically claimed to be one of the worst sections to live in the United States. And Haddon's father, in his old age, had gotten beaten up twice by thugs. One time, he was knocked down two flights of stairs and sent to the hospital. Another time, he was beaten up and, because of it, developed a hernia. And his father didn't know what a hernia was, so he, being a man of simple, maybe even simplistic faith, just prayed that God would heal him. And when God didn't heal him, he became very upset. So he wrote a letter to his son, to Haddon in Texas. And when Haddon got it and read it, within a day, he was on a flight to New York City to go get his father. And he brought him back to Texas where he had surgery to repair the hernia. 
But after that, his father said to Haddon that he was very upset because he felt like God had let him down. He had prayed for healing and God didn't bring it. Haddon tried to explain to him that the hand of the physician was the hand of God doing the work of healing, but his father would have none of it. He shrugged it off and he would say the last years of his father's life were not good ones. He had diminishing health, but more than that, more importantly, he had a diminishing faith because of that experience. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you know someone who can relate to that. Maybe you're in that right now. When you struggle or you're struggling to believe God's promises because you feel like he hasn't delivered that's exactly where we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 6. Moses is upset, despairing, struggling to believe God's promises. God's people are upset, despairing, struggling to believe any kind of good news. And it raises the question, why do we struggle to believe God's promises? Why do we struggle? And there's three reasons that come out of this chapter. The first is because of a circumstantial interpretation of God's promises. God sends Moses to deliver to his people this astonishing news, this good news that's summarized in verses six to eight, which we will get to in detail. He comes to the people and he delivers this astonishing news. How do they respond? Look at verse nine. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Their spirits were so broken. Their slavery was so awful. They were so crushed that they couldn't hear the good news. They couldn't fathom that there was anything good or that anything good could happen. All they could hear was the voice of Pharaoh. The voice of Pharaoh telling them to get back to their burdens, telling them they were lazy, stripping them of all dignity as a human being made in the image of God. That's the voice they could hear, and it was loud, and their spirits were so broken that when good news came, they couldn't hear it or believe it. Their spirits were crushed. Maybe you can relate to that. In a season where trauma and pain of the moment is so heavy, that you can't believe there's anything good or that anything good will happen. You can only hear the voice of the person who oppressed you or abused you. You can only hear the voice of the person who shamed you or embarrassed you. You can only hear the voice of your physical pain screaming loudly that something is seriously wrong with your body. You can only hear the monthly reminder of a barren womb 
or the rebellion of a wayward child, or you can only hear your boss's words that you're fired and you're not measuring up at work, or you can only hear the megaphone of your singleness that, that screams you're not beautiful enough or you're not successful enough that somebody would want to marry you. When trauma and pain like this goes on and on, it can easily lead to cynicism. And cynicism is that dark place where we find God's people here in Exodus chapter six. It's that dark place where nothing will get better. It's that dark place where nothing will change. And cynicism eventually leads to frostbite of the soul, which is just a numbness to anything good from God, a numbness of any good news that could come from God. Now, how do you get to a place like this? How did the Israelites get to a place like this when they hear this astonishing good news from God and they can't even believe it? You get to this place when you begin to interpret God's promises and God's character through your circumstances. When your circumstances start to dictate and define who God is rather than God defining and interpreting your, your circumstances. And it can bring you to this place of cynicism. It can almost be like uh, reading a thermometer in an urban area or an urban setting. If you take an outdoor thermometer and you put it on the back of your house and you live in the middle of a city in a booming urban setting, and you live by an expressway, or you live by a paved parking lot, or you live by another building, there's a good chance that thermometer is going to read five or 10 degrees hotter than it really is. Because concrete, asphalt, bricks absorb heat and reflect it. So that's why when you read from the National Weather Service, if you're ever interested, on exactly where to put your thermometer to get an accurate reading, you'd read something like this. A thermometer or its sensor should be located over grass, in a white ventilated shelter, four to six feet off the ground, at least 100 feet from all paved surfaces, and at least 500 feet from any building. That's almost impossible in an urban setting. But if you don't meet those guidelines, then you can't trust the reading on the thermometer. In the same way, if you take your heart and you place it squarely in the urban setting of your circumstances, it is not going to give you an accurate reading of God's character and of God's promises. Circumstances speak loudly. And when they interpret God's character and God's promises, they often leave you in a place struggling to believe and ultimately a place of cynicism, numbness, darkness, coldness of the heart towards God's good promises. That's the first reason why we struggle to believe God's good news is because of our circumstances. But second, second reason we struggle is because of a, a self-centered interpretation of God's promises. A self-centered interpretation of God's promises. Uh, Moses' failure is front and center in chapters five and six. In chapter five, Moses confronts Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't listen. In chapter 6, Moses confronts God's people, the Israelites. 
and they don't listen. This is strike two on Moses. He's failed twice. From a human perspective, he has failed twice. What's interesting is how Moses processes his failure and how he interprets God's promises and his character through his failure. Look at verse 12. The people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Then over to verse 30. Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? At the end of chapter 5, Moses blames God for his failure. In chapter 6 now, he blames his lack of competence for his failure. He's not a gifted speaker. And what we see here, we've seen it in the beginning of Exodus, is that Moses continually thinks too highly of himself. He continues to place himself right in the center role of the rescue, the place that God occupies. But Moses is thinking highly of himself, thinking highly of his role in the rescue. And what that does is it causes Moses to actually impose criteria of success that God never promised. If you go back to chapter three in Exodus, when God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh, tell him, let my people go, listen to what God says to Moses in verse 19 of chapter three. He says, I know that the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Essentially, God says to Moses, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. He's not going to listen to you. I'm going to send wonders and acts of judgment, which are the 10 plagues, which we're going to get to. And after that, then my people will be delivered. But God actually, in, in the beginning of chapter 7, he reiterates it. He says, Moses, Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. You see, God never promised Moses that Pharaoh would listen to him. In fact, he told him just the opposite. Pharaoh's not going to listen. And yet, here's the progression, right? When Moses starts to feel, think too highly of himself, when he starts to process this whole rescue plan through self, when he puts himself at the center, he begins to impose these man-made criteria of success, which for Moses was, Pharaoh's going to listen to me. And when Pharaoh doesn't listen, and Moses fails his own human standards of success, he begins to blame, blames God, then he blames his lack of competence, I'm not a good speaker. And you and I do the same thing. We do the same thing. That when we impose these criteria of success that God has never promised, and then we fail to meet those, we fall into the same place of Israel. Moses, maybe blame God, enter into despair, cynicism over things that God never promised. Let me give you a couple of examples. And I realize these are hard, but we have to understand the truth behind this. Number one, God has never promised you a life free from sickness. 
or disease or disorder. What he has promised you is a glorious body free from all of that when Jesus returns. God has never promised you a career full of regular promotions or work that you love every minute of. What he has promised you is work in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns that will be perfectly rewarding. God never promised you a marriage free from friction or hardship or difficulty. But he has promised you a marriage to Christ in the new heavens and the new earth that will satisfy every one of your longings. God has never promised you a life free from failure, but he has promised you freedom from the pain of failure when Jesus returns. Moses begins to attach himself to promises that God never made. Moses attached himself to this promise, Pharaoh's going to listen to me, when God never promised that. And the result is Moses begins to fall into despair. Again, he's putting himself at the center of this rescue plan. And as he processes everything through self, he begins to establish criteria that God never established. And that's one of the reasons why this genealogy is in this chapter. We didn't read it. But this genealogy of Moses and Aaron, it's their family tree. What's the purpose of it? Well, one of the purposes comes out in verse 27. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. It's almost, uh, you can hear the astonishment in the words. It's this Moses, this Aaron that come from this family tree. And I can't go into detail for time purposes, but let me just tell you in this family tree, there are moments of faithfulness but there are moments of absolute sin and brokenness and rebellion. And the point is that Moses and Aaron come from this ordinary family tree. They are ordinary human beings, broken and sinful, and yet chosen by God, not because they're special, but just chosen by God and commissioned to do something extraordinary that God would do through them. The human failure of Moses confronting Pharaoh was not a failure on God's part. That human failure was a part of God's will. It was what he would use to ultimately deliver on his promises. And that's how God uses human failure. Human failure is a part of his will. He uses it, not only uses it, but ordains it to accomplish his will. And when we have that perspective, when we move ourselves out of the center and God into the center of rescue and salvation, and we realize that human failure is what he uses to accomplish his will, it changes the way we respond to failure and it changes the way that we interpret God's character and promises through our failure. Failure becomes actually a reason to believe God's promises not a reason to distrust his promises. So why do you struggle to believe God's promises? First, because of a circumstantial interpretation of God's promises. Second, because of a self-centered interpretation of God's promises. And then finally, because of a nearsighted, a nearsighted interpretation of God's promises. 
End of chapter five, Moses is licking his wounds, right? He confronted Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't listen. The slavery got worse for God's people. And it's in that moment that Moses begins to attribute evil to God. He maligns God's character. Uh, He also begins to accuse God of breaking his promises, right? Moses is licking his wounds. He's he's blame-shifting. He's stuck in this moment of his failure. He's stuck in the moment of his people crying out still in harsh slavery, worse slavery in Egypt. And it's in this moment that it's interesting to note how God responds. How does God respond to Moses when he is stuck in the present, stuck in this moment of his perceived human failure, blame shifting? You know, God could have responded by rebuking Moses. That wouldn't have been completely out of line with what he said to God. But that's not how God responds. What you'll notice in verses two through eight is that God responds by number one, repeating three times, beginning, middle, and end, I am the Lord. This is who I am. And then he speaks about what he's done and he speaks about what he will do. This is who I am. This is what I've done. This is what I will do. He takes moment, Moses, who's stuck in the moment, stuck in the present, can't get his eyes off of the immediate, and he points his eyes backwards to what God's done, and he points his eyes forward. So look at verses, look at verses two through five. It reminds Moses of his past actions. And he says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel. I have remembered my covenant. God has a perfect track record, has never failed his promise. And he tells Moses that. Moses, here's what I've done. But he doesn't stop there. He says, here's what I will do in verses six to eight. And we have here these beautiful seven I will statements from God. Seven I wills that are sandwiched on the front and the back end by I am the Lord. Here's who I am and here's what I'll do. The first two I wills in verse six, I will bring you out and I will deliver you. That speaks of liberation and freedom from slavery. Then to the third I will toward the end of verse six, I will redeem you. That speaks of redemption, which is the price that has to be paid, the costly price to purchase someone out of slavery. Then to the fourth and fifth I wills in verse seven, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. These I wills speak of adoption. It speaks of family. It speaks of God gathering his children to himself. Then to the last two I wills in verse eight, I will bring you into the land and I will give it to you for a possession. Speaking of living in a new land, a new home, you throw all those I wills together and what you have is God's promise of liberation, God's promise of redemption, God's promise of adoption, God's promise of a new home. Now, if that in itself is not astonishing enough of what God will do, This is even more. 
2 Corinthians 1.20 says, for all the promises of God, including the seven I wills in Exodus 6, find their yes in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ takes every one of these I will statements and turns it into I have done it. I have done it. Through his death and resurrection, he's liberated you, freed you from slavery to sin. Through his death, he's paid the costly price of redemption with his own blood. By faith in him, you become a brother and a sister of Christ and a child of your heavenly father, adoption, family. And through faith in Christ, you're assured that he is going to return. And when he does, he's going to usher in a new world. It's free from all death, all pain, all sin. All of those promises find their yes, not in your performance. Not in the news of the day. Not in our current situation in our country. All of those promises find their yes in Jesus Christ and him alone. And so what that means is when you're stuck in a moment, as Moses was stuck in the moment of his failure, as Israel was stuck in the moment of this slavery, whatever that moment is for you, God lifts your eyes up and he points them back at the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross that accomplished your salvation. And then he points your eyes forward to the return of Jesus Christ and the new world and the new home that he's going to bring that's free from all of that pain and all of that hardship. It's God's past and God's future that speaks into our present. When that loud voice of Pharaoh is speaking, when your circumstance is speaking loud, it's his past and his future that speak into and hem you in in the present with his good promises. I remember growing up, learning how to drive, probably age 15, 16, whatever it was back then. And I remember the instructor, my driving instructor, telling me and teaching me, he was going to teach me where to look when learning to drive. And I thought, that's not very profound. Like, you just look out the windshield. That's what you do. But then he began to explain what he meant. I went, oh, they're actually, this is actually pretty profound. He said, when you're driving your car, you need to look in the rearview mirror periodically to see what's behind you. So that when, if you have to jam the brakes or something happens in front of you, you have to swerve, you, you know what lane to swerve into, right? Because you know who's behind you and where they are. And then probably the more profound one that I heard from my instructor and then ultimately my parents is that when you're driving, um, that, that you, your eyes should be off, fixed on some point down the road. And this was the hardest for me. When I first learned how to drive, you know, my hands are white knuckled on the wheel and I'm looking like just over the hood onto the ground at the two white lines I had to stay in between. And so I'd be staring at those white lines trying to keep the car in between the lines. And of course, what happens when you're looking straight down like that? You know, this was me going down the road. You're just kind of weaving back and forth trying to stay between the lines. And the wisdom was, no, look, look down the road. And as you do that, you'll actually, you'll actually drive straight. When you get stuck in a moment, and let me just say this. 
whether your life is full of blessing right now, whether your life is full of suffering, right? We're in a broken world. Everyone is stuck in some sort of moment. And when your eyes get fixated on that moment and they stay on that moment, eventually it leads to despair. Eventually it leads to cynicism, not believing God's promises. And what God does graciously by his Holy Spirit is picks your eyes up to look down the road into the future, to the return of Christ, to look back at what Christ has accomplished. And that's what gives you the hope to drive straight, so to speak, in the present. There is so much uncertainty in our world right now. There's so much uncertainty in our country. And that's on top of the uncertainty that's in your personal life. We don't know when there's going to be a widespread vaccine for COVID. We don't know. We don't know who the next president of the United States is going to be in 2021. We don't know when the civil unrest and the racial unrest in our country is going to start to die down. You don't know when the health issue that you're going through is going to turn the corner. You don't know when your child who maybe is wayward or making wrong choices is going, to, is going to turn the corner. You don't know if you're going to have your job next week. You don't know if your business is going to survive this re recession. There are so many uncertainties right now. In the midst of the uncertainty, there are two things that are certain. These are the only two things that are certain in our world right now. And that is that Jesus Christ has come once and died and rose and that he is coming back again. That's it. Jesus came and Jesus is returning. Looking back, looking forward. And if you will hang your life on those two certainties, you will have rest and you will have joy, and you will have peace as you move through your moment, whatever it is. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we certainly can resonate, resonate with the Israelites in Exodus 6, that because of their broken spirit, they couldn't even believe your good news. And we know what that feels like. We know what it's like to get to that place of cynicism, of darkness, of just numbness to your good news. And yet we thank you that all those promises that are just beautiful and amazing that we read here in Exodus 6, we are so thankful that all those promises find their yes, not in us, not in our good efforts, not in shifting news of the day. All of those promises find their yes in you, Jesus. And we are so grateful. Father, would you attach our hearts by your spirit to those promises that you have given in Christ that are yes and amen. And that that would give us hope and joy and peace and rest in our present, in our present moment, whatever that may be. 
Jesus, you came once and you're coming back again. May we, by grace and by your spirit, hang our lives on those two certainties. In Christ's name we pray, amen.